This talk was recorded at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles and is freely offered for your enjoyment. For more information, please visit againstthestream.org. Welcome to everyone. I'm Noah. Uh, I'm the regular teacher of this group, but tonight we have a guest teacher. Ajahn Tanasanti is visiting us from her current location in Colorado. And she is a Buddhist nun. She's been in robes uh, practicing as a monastic for about 22 years. And just recently, there's some different levels of ordination. And just recently, three days ago, uh, she took the full ordination, and maybe she'll talk to us a little bit about what that means. She was telling me earlier, she was in the airport coming here, and a Thai woman came up to her and said, Oh, are you a, a, a bikuini? Which means a female monastic, a nun. And she said, Yes. And she said, For how long? She said, Three days. <laughs> Even though it's actually been 22 years on. Just a couple days ago. Really happy to have her here. She's doing something very important. Some of you are aware of the controversy and the difficulty for women within the Theravadan monastic system. And she is one of the brave women who has left uh, the orthodoxy and is uh, setting out on her own to establish a more uh, equal and uh, empowered way to practice in Buddhism for women, for female monastics. So it's very exciting, it's very cutting edge, and uh, in the process of creating something that perhaps is more in line with the Buddha, and less in line with religious, patriarchal structures. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> so I'm happy to have her here and thank you all for joining us this evening. And Tanasanti will lead us in some meditation and then talk. Thank you. So we can start with a little bit of meditation instruction. So for people who are brand new and even if you're old hands, sometimes it's helpful just to set things up with the right posture and the right attitude. So just, just take a moment to let your attention connect with your physical body. So bring your attention into your body, your whole body. And just to get a sense of how you're sitting. So what, what we're wanting to do is to find a posture that's in line with gravity. So that there's the least amount of effort needed in order to stay upright. And the most amount of sense of ease and balance. What's really helpful for that is to make sure that the, that the hips are higher than the, than the knees. So if you need an extra sitting cushion, or if you need to double over this, the, the zabutan, or you need to turn the, this, this cushion so that it's on its edge, or you need to put your legs by your sides, any of those things are fine. Just so that the, the hips are higher than the knees. And then what's also really helpful is to tilt the top of one's pelvis slightly forward. So 
One's not using will so much as finding the place of balance where the small of the back has a nice arch in it, the top of the pelvis is tilted forward, and that quite naturally allows the back to be upright. If you're sitting in a chair, that's fine. Make sure that your, your legs are on the ground, your feet are on the ground, that they're flat. And also, again, that you're allowing the pelvis to tilt forward, which often means not leaning against the back of the chair, sitting on the edge of the chair. And this allows the chest to open, the shoulders to relax, and the arms to relax. And just being able to sit in this way where there's balance and alignment with gravity creates the opportunity for attention to rest with awareness of the body. Just making that effort to be balanced in posture supports mind coming into connection and congruence with the body. So we take a few moments to sit right, to establish the right posture, and then allow attention to connect with the physical sensations and the shape, the space of the body, without any sense of judgment or hoping or asking things to be a particular way. But this kind of open, receptive embracing of what's present, allowing things to be as they are, with the intention to stay present and to keep allowing what arises without judgment. So we start just with the physical sensations of connecting with the body, feeling what the body feels like. Is it tense? Is it tired? Are you wired? Are you hungry? Are you hot? Cold? Without any story connected to it, just staying with the physical, bare impressions. Sometimes it's very helpful to allow the breath to be a place where attention settles and is nourished. So physical body sensations, experience, direct experience of the breath is a foundation, an anchor where attention can return to. As one receives the impressions that arise, the thoughts, the moods, the feelings, the sounds, without getting carried by, by stories about them, hijacked by them. And if one is getting carried by stories and feeling hijacked, then just returning to a simpler place for attention to rest until attention is more established. In this way, meditation is not about having certain experiences or getting rid of certain experiences, but being open, receptive, connected, and embracing what is. Remembering that the posture is a tremendous support 
the mind. And so in this way, we'll sit quietly for the next 20 minutes. And in this way, each needs to direct her or his own practice without pushing, without forcing, without resisting, without harming anything. Softening, opening, allowing, and embracing. Would you like to stand up and stretch for a moment? Can you kind of fall? And if you're sitting back here, feel free to come up in front of the chair. There's plenty of room you can come up here and bring your cushion. How many people don't have a cushion at all to sit on? Thank you. 
And in order to do that in a way which is genuine and authentic, it requires a mutual agreement and joint responsibility. And so my, my, my deal is to speak from a, a, a still and a quiet place as I can, from as much connection to truth as I can. And your deal is to listen from that place and to call me out if I'm speaking against what you know your deepest truth to be. And in that way, we create a relationship of mutual respect and a relationship that is uh, organized around the principle of awakening that has everyone's best interests at heart. And so, how does that sound? Good enough? Good enough to go? Great. So, um, the, what I wanted to talk about tonight was the topic of rebellion, passivity, and nonviolence. And I think I'll speak about it from my own personal experience and see if I can tie it around into ways that make sense for you. You know, so you heard that I've been a nun for 21 years or so. And uh, I remember when I was a young nun, so as an Anagara, I was in white and I was in eight precepts. And, uh, and so, um, you know, in the course of the community's evolutions, things shift. But in the very beginning, when we first came, actually probably for the first 10 or 15 years, there was a rule that the monks had that they were not allowed to make this gesture of respect to anybody who was other than a monk. Okay? So... structure where men have more privileges than women. That just doesn't fly. So I remember being absolutely furious. I mean, furious about this. And I don't remember what I said, but I was speaking to one monk who was so sweet and so kind and so lovely and everybody loved him. He was just such a lovely monk. And he said, Nuns will have a greater opportunity to practice patience and humility. And I wanted to lay him flat. <laughs> I was like, you have got to be joking. Anyway, so I went out to the walking path absolutely enraged with this utter nonsense that I was hearing. Walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with my fury and my rage and all the rest of it. My righteous indignation and how dare he and why doesn't he understand anything? And then I realized, well, actually, in fact, it was his problem. It wasn't mine. And not only that, but what I could see was is that if I let go of my anger, I felt like I was giving up the cause. And I thought, that is really interesting. What cause am I giving up if I let go of my anger? And so what I had sensed was is that there was some kind of a, a 
cause with women uniting together against something like this that I had inadvertently identified with without actually even being aware of. And so I thought that if I let go of my anger in that specific circumstance, then I would be giving up the cause in my solidarity with other women against any form of oppression whatsoever. So the specific event of making Anjali got turned into a universal identification with a whole philosophical cause. And then I could see the error of my thinking. And when I could see that, I dropped it. And I thought, this is their problem. If they can't bow, that's their tough luck. It's not mine, and I don't need to take it on as mine. I can bow. And the bowing actually has a tremendous gesture of openness and loveliness and a quality of humility. And I can have the pleasure of that. And if they can't, that's their trip. I don't need to take it on. So as an anagarica, I worked with it in that particular situation. And I could see the results of it. And I could see the shift from this mind that was inflamed with this righteous ignoration that I wanted to smack him and flatten him into something that was actually grounded and peaceful and willing to work with a form that in normal circumstances would have been not something that I would have been happy to deal with. Because I was relating to it in terms of what was arising in me and how I was actually practicing with it. So I could see my anger, I could see my contraction, I could see what I had done just to create a belief system and identify with it and realized that all of these things were actually not serving my best interests. So I dropped it. And so for many years, that was fine. Doing this was fine. So as an anagarican, as a young nun, and as a junior nun, and as a middle nun, this was fine. So living in a community, living in any group of people, living in a family, being in a marriage, working in a situation, there are constantly times when one is having to negotiate when one fights, when one shuts up, and when one actually speaks, it's natural. And it's not so much whether one fights or shuts up or speaks, but where it is actually coming from, which is actually the deciding factor as to whether or not this is skillful or not skillful. So the young years of training in the monastery, the encouragement was to shut up and watch our minds. <laughs> this was explicitly said. So there was this kind of basic sense that everything could possibly be resolved by negotiating it as an internal experience. So if we came back to the meditation cushion, we watched what was arising, we would be able to resolve everything. And for many years, that's what we did. You know, we actually tried not to negotiate the circumstance and work it out in the relationship and try and change things. We tried to resolve it as an internal, interpersonal phenomenon. And then the sisters realized that there was a limit to how much we could do this, you know, not only as a kind of a structural thing, but also interpersonally. And then we began to realize that it was really important, there were times when it was really important to start speaking out. And so, you know, when two people would have a massive kind of crash or clash or blow up or meltdown, you know, it was actually important to come back and talk it through.
Is that better? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So keep following me if it loses me. Yeah? Thank you. So let me just sidetrack slightly. Have any, any of you heard of Marshall Rosenberg? Yeah. A few. Okay, Marshall Rosenberg is a psychologist who's done a lot of work with nonviolent communication. And he works with people who are in a lot of conflict and helps them find ways of communicating in a way which is effective. And um, I, I went to a couple of his things, and I like the work that he does. And some of his stories, I think, are great. One of the stories was as he was just first starting to do this work, and he was going with his wife to some kind of a dinner party, and Aunt Matilda was going to be there. And he always knew that Aunt Matilda would get into these loops, and she couldn't stop. And he hated it because there was no authenticity, there was no presence, there was no connection, there was no dialogue. There was just Aunt Matilda going on and 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 on. So he said to his wife, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm sure they're never going to invite us back again. And so his wife said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know but I'm sure they're never going to invite us back again. <laughs> so they went to dinner, and Aunt Matilda got into her booth, and she was talking on and 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 on, and he interrupted her, and he said to her, are you interested in what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> and it stopped her in her tracks. And then at the end of the evening, they were checking in and debriefing about what had happened. And she was really grateful to him because she wasn't interested in what she was saying. But she'd gotten so stuck in this loop that she had no way of getting out of it. And so he acknowledged that that was probably slightly less gracious than one might be able to manage if one had a little bit more skill. But what he was doing was he was trying to create a pathway of genuine, authentic communication that he didn't yet have the skills how to do it. So it was the beginning. And when you're beginning, sometimes you're a little bit more unpolished or rough or not as gracious as when you've got more skill. And then he talked about his daughter. So he had a daughter. I and mean, she was nine years old. She was perfect. She was beautiful, and she was perfect, and she did everything right. And as a psychologist, after a while, he started to be very concerned. This was not a good idea. This was not something that made him pleased. He was disturbed. A perfect girl who never upset anyone and did everything right all the time. And so one day, he got a call from the principal. And the principal hauled him into his office gave him what for, because she was speaking in vernacular to the principal, because the principal had caught her out wearing overalls, and the dress code was you couldn't wear overalls. And this perfect little girl had turned into a teenager and was not so perfect any longer. And Marshall was absolutely delighted. <laughs> because as a psychologist, what he understood was is that she had transitioned out of being the person who was pleasing everybody into what he affectionately referred to as the obnoxious phase, which is when a person is in your face and demanding their own space and demanding their need to be heard in a way which is insensitive, which is often rude, can be vulgar, 
but nevertheless signals a transition into something which approaches integration and health. And you see, in the Buddhist path, we don't have the obnoxious phase as part of our path. <laughs> but the reality is, it is absolutely part of our path. And if you live in a community, you can verify from the marrow of your bones that it is part of the path. So what happens is, is we start with this ideal in a monastery of how we are supposed to be. We keep that together for a while until reality impresses itself and starts breaking out of this ideal. And what's often the case is that we go through periods of quite a while of being in your face, obnoxious, insensitive, unskillful, demanding our space, getting our needs met at the cost of everyone else around us. This is what is known as rebellion. It's like, it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter what your needs are, this is my needs and I demand that you pay attention to me right now and I don't care what I do in order to get my attention and my needs met. But what Marshall pointed out is that this is actually a step of health from being contracted, trying to please, trying to do everything according to everybody else's needs at one's own expense. hopefully, is we can move out of the obnoxious space. Some of it takes us 40 years, some 60 years, some never manage it. And eventually move into a way of relating where we are attentive to our own needs and we are not doing it at anybody else's expense. Where there's actually no harm happening on any level. So one is very clear about one's own needs. One is completely able to stay present and able to negotiate it in a way where nobody else is getting squashed or trampled in the process. Passivity is the process of compromising one's own needs for another value. Sometimes that value is group harmony. Sometimes that value is the fear of being rejected. Sometimes that value is the fear of the consequences of what happens if you speak out. Sometimes it's not bad to be passive. Sometimes one's passive because one recognizes that one's sitting on top of a volcano and if you open the mouth, you're going to have a lava flow and who knows what's going to happen with all of that. That's not necessarily unskillful. In fact, that can be profoundly skillful. But when there's passivity, what's happening is there's compromise. Sometimes that compromise is for very noble reasons, and sometimes those reasons are strongly fear-based. When compromise comes as a result of fear, then there are consequences as a result that one has to pick up later. So as a young nun, I worked it out that it wasn't my problem, it was their problem. After being a nun for 10 or 15 years, I began to see something else emerging in this dynamic. 
which is that living in a relationship where the monks were categorically senior and the nuns were categorically junior, the women were being conditioned not to be able to see things clearly. We were not able to see things clearly. We were not able to realize the truth. And what we were doing was conditioning ourselves to fit into a system that wasn't actually supportive of awakening. Furthermore, what happens to any minority group in a larger group that's antithetical to them is that there's what's known as internalized oppression. And that internalized oppression acts itself out within the group So the sisters were at each other's throats for about 20 years until we had the ground and the confidence and the capacity to actually work out what was going on and to hold the complexity of the dilemma so that we could stay in resonance with ourselves, our process, and the monks and be able to articulate it. What happened to me was I began to get clear that what we were in was not helpful. In fact, it was destructive and it was imperative to move out. I was in a community and I was going to be part of the Serenaloka Sisters coming to California to start a branch monastery. And it was clear to me that we had to move out of some of the stuff that to me was no longer serving us. In fact, it had never served us. But because we had found ways to work with it, we bypassed the issue in order to stay in the community. A number of things happened that were aggressive, intimidating, angry, bullying, without due process. And I came to a place in myself where I said, I cannot participate. So we were asked to participate in a particular ceremony, and the ceremony was, it was told to us that we had to participate in the ceremony with all of these things that I mentioned. Aggression, bullying, no due process. And I said, no, I will not do this. This is the first time in my life that I have experienced civil disobedience where I knew in the core of my being I was not going to participate in this and I knew it so strongly that it actually did not matter what the consequences were it was so I've never experienced that before I, I would have preferred to have been shot than to go through with that because I knew so clearly that to go through with that was condoning bullying, violence, aggression, and non-process, all of which was not helpful. In fact, it was causing a chaos in the community. I didn't have an axe to grind. I wasn't angry. I wasn't interested that people understood what I was coming from, even though I was completely happy to stay in relationship and let everybody know what my process was. There was It was as, as if I was in a column of light moving from a place of stillness. That is a totally different experience than somebody in your face 
with an axe to grind and has a tremendous energy to it. In fact, the result of that is, is that my whole life has shifted having entered into that clarity and moved from that place. The consequences of having done that was is that I did leave the community. And I left the community when I decided to leave the community. I had nothing. I had no organization. There were no funds. There was no place for me to go. I had no idea how it was going to work out. But it was clear, absolutely clear, I had to go. Because it was also clear that this stuff has to be negotiated. And there's no way that it can be negotiated in the context that I was in. We were up against reinforced concrete. It was not moving. So the clarity that allowed that non-participation gave the strength to do the next thing. And then, of course, I came to the States, and then a few months later, completely collapsed. <laughs> because when you enter into that kind of a process, it affects you on a very deep level. And the kind of shifts and the integration and all the rest of it that it takes is not trivial. You know, so I've been here back in the States a year in July. It took me three months to actually touch what had gotten activated and nine months to recover. And I'm just, just back with my energy, but, you know, basically things are still all over the map as I'm still very much rich in a process of integrating what the decision and the implications of that has meant. But what is clear to me is, is that when you know categorically in your heart you do not want to do things that are harmful, you do not want to do things that are harmful to yourself, and you do not want to do things that are harmful to others, that it is really important not to support or to condone activities that you know are harmful. No matter what the consequences are. So we have rebellion. We have passivity. And we have nonviolence. Now, nonviolence isn't so much concerned about the feelings that other people have as it is the process that one is undertaking. And so for me, in that process in the monastery, as I was deciding not to participate in the ceremony, I was absolutely transparent with my community and my sisters about what it was that I was doing and receiving their feedback and their concerns and responding to them all along the way. They were supportive. They understood what I was doing. Two of them were very concerned. One of them was very anxious that it would mean that I would no longer be in the community. I tried to convey to her that it did not matter that there was absolutely no way categorically that I could participate in that ceremony, and I was prepared to take the consequences. I wasn't angry. And I wasn't afraid. It was time to take a stand and say, no, you've gone too far, and I will not condone our participation. 
They put it in the center. Yeah. So, you know, in my own life, you know, I can see how these different things operate. You know, I can experience, I think probably all of us can know this kind of righteous indignation, you know, in your face, get out of my way, I'm doing it my way, you know? We also know what it is to, to let go of our own needs in order to preserve something that feels like the group need. But we do it without taking care of our own needs. But how many of us know what this other thing is like? Where you're standing strong in your presence, in your own clarity, without anger, without fear, knowing the direction that you need to move, not intending to harm, but not willing to compromise your own basic values in order to get there. So for me, these three themes are not only about how we live in the world, but also what we do in our practice, how we relate to our immediate arising of what is happening, how we respond to it. We can do the same thing with what's going on in our bodies and our hearts and our minds. You know, where we take an, an anvil or a sledgehammer to things that we don't want to feel. Or we say, you know, I don't want to know. What's arising, I don't want to know. It's too scary to know. I don't want to know. But that place of clarity where one is clear about the path one needs to navigate, allowing what is present to arise and be known in awareness, without fighting, without pushing, without denying, one holds that true center and moves from that place. How do we experience that in our present moment meditation experience? This is non-violence. Now one of the things about anger, particularly well, actually, this is a Dharma punk, so maybe you guys have a totally different take on anger. <laughs> but I come from a kind of cultural conditioning where anger's bad. And I come from a family s- situation where it wasn't okay to express it. And so for me, my weirdness was to undo those conditionings and to allow it into awareness and to accept it for what it was without either shirking away from it or um, stuffing it in my bones. That's one way of dealing with it. Another way of dealing with anger is to feel like, well, as soon as I can discharge it and dump it on somebody else, then the better. Both are equally destructive. And so the healthy way with anger is to recognize that it's arising, to understand that it arises because of causes, to understand that there is some relevance in why it has arisen, 
Let's be very skillful in what one does with it. So stuffing it in one's bones is just as destructive as letting it rip and dumping it on somebody else. And yet to develop the skills so that one neither is suppressing it or dumping it has to do with the way we are attending to our internal experience. So for myself, coming from a long history of suppression, I had to give myself permission to tolerate anger. And there was one retreat, I was in Switzerland, it was in the middle of the winter time, it was minus 15 degrees below zero, and I was, the, the steam was kind of like exuding out of my ears. And I needed to do some catharsis, but I was really frightened, because, you know, anger's bad. So I went out into the mountains with my sticks of incense and my candles, and I did a little puja, may this be for the benefit of all beings. And I stuck my incense around, and I picked up some rocks, and I cursed, and I threw the rocks until, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was able to tolerate the experience of anger arising in my body and being expressed through my words in a way where there was no person being hurt. And I survived. The earth didn't open up and swallow me whole. <laughs> And so for somebody who has a long-standing history of repression, for me that was really a major shift. To tolerate anger and express it in a way where no one was being hurt. For people who are really good at dumping, who've got razor tongues that can just narrow in on the like you know, the heat sinking missiles, you know, the most vulnerable spots and nail a person where they're most raw, what is needed is to be able to hold the energy, to contain the energy, to let it spread, to recognize that by dumping it, there is no benefit. It is not helpful to anybody. Through developing an increased capacity to hold that energy, one will develop skillful ways of communicating about it without it being so destructive. One has to start with where one's at. And move forward. So anger, like most other energies, is on a continuum, and when we take out the destructive quality that is connected to it, what we are connected to is a very strong protective force. And that protective force is something that's interested in non-harming. You know, so you watch a, a mother bear with her cubs. You are dealing with a powerful force. Or you see mothers with young children trapped under a car. They can lift the car up. You know, this is not pansy material. There's a kind of force of protection that 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 
revitalizes the person to do things which otherwise are impossible. There's a force which says, I will not let this harm continue. But if we don't let harm continue by causing harm, there's an element of the equation that doesn't add up. So we have to do our own work in looking at where is this stuff coming from? Because you can be ferocious without being angry. So knowing our own intention, speaking from a place that is clear and grounded and powerful but not angry, is moving out from the obnoxious phase and the passive phase into the non-violent phase. So each of us has our own value system. Each of us has our own lives. Each of us has our own decisions. We need to decide what works, what we value what we want to work towards, what we want to give up. And you need for yourselves to figure out what's more effective, what's more fulfilling, what's more congruent with your own values. For myself, I have seen that I have waited a long time to develop the skill that was needed in order to live in a way where I was holding my own ground and speaking my own truth without an axe to grind. And it has been worth the effort. It has not been easy, <laughs> but it's been worth the effort. <laughs> anyway, enough of me. Let's change the format, open up for questions. Again, the invitation is not to listen or believe anything that I've said, to see what feels right to you, to take that from your own internal sense, to let go of stuff that I have said that doesn't make sense. And if there's anything that I have said that goes against your deepest understanding of the truth, then come and talk to me. Yes, please. Uh, I wanted to clarify... When you were describing the, the, the path that was really clear to you, especially if you had to make about the ceremony, um, I think you were you were illustrating like a basically a nonviolent response, a, a way to communicate what was true for you. But you were describing it 